Hey guys, and welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And I'm your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride for another edition. No doubt going to be another fun time right here this week of the Wrestling Stoop. And quite an interesting show last week. Bob got into the plane crash of 1975, the one that took place in Tampa, involving the likes of Gary Hart, Austin Idol, Buddy Colt, Bobby Shane. And speaking of Bobby Shane, over the course of the past week, Bob got a hold of me and said, Ray, I've had an epiphany. Remember the story that Bob shared about his tour of Australia for Tony Colony, promoter Tony Colony? And of course, Bobby Shane there working as the booker. Well, Bob had some time to mull it over, and he's starting to see some things in a brand new light. Looking forward to hearing all about that here today on the show. We're also going to head back to 1971 in the Florida Territory. Bob Roop coming back in November of 1970 from his first tour of Japan with the JWA promotion. And this week, we're going to touch on some of the names that Bob came in contact with there in 71 after his return. Going to look at some of his tag team partners as well as some of his opponents. And just a few of the names you guys can expect to hear about today include Johnny Walker, Mr. Wrestling 2, the big French-Canadian Tarzan Tyler. How about Big Bad Bobby Duncan, Bob's former tag team partner Danny Miller, as well as his opponents like manager J.C. Dykes and the Infernos. And that's just a few of the names I'm sure Bob's going to take us for quite a ride here this week, so stay tuned. But first, just a quick reminder that you guys can listen to The Wrestling Stoop, along with sister shows like The Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently covering the 1988 and the WWF Project. Also listen to The Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. Currently three projects going on right now there at Regional Wrestling, including 1981 in Georgia, 1986 in Bill Watts' UWF, and 1985 in the Memphis Territory. You can also listen to our upcoming podcast, the Pearl Wrestling Academy, where host, the professor of Pearl Resu himself, Dan Janetti, joins the WrestleCopia brand as we all get the English-speaking version of the history of Japanese pro wrestling. And you guys can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia podcast network, located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met. From Apple to Spotify, Pocket Cast, and beyond. And while you guys are listening, why not do us a little solid here and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast streaming app, Apple, and some of the other ones offer the availability to leave a rating for the show that you're listening to. And if you guys like what you're listening to here on the Wrestling Stoop or any of the podcasts as part of WrestleCopia, please leave us that five-star rating. Drop us a sentence or two. Tell us why you like the shows. It really goes a long way in helping the WrestleCopia brand. And in return, we'll leave you some love, a little shout-out here right on the podcast. And be sure to follow us on social media, guys. You can follow Bob Roop. Friend him over there at Facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. Bob, always good for an anecdote or two just about every day of the week. And I'm sure he's certainly looking forward to adding you as his friend. You guys can also follow me, Ray Russell, on social media. You can follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade for all the latest goings on here. At the WrestleCopia Podcast Network Plus, I'm constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And hey, while you're at it, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys? YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And last but certainly not least, now would be a tremendous time to become a WrestleCopia patron, guys. Talking about that $5 all-access tier. Get you all sorts of gifts for just 5 bucks over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash wrestle, C-O-P-I-A. 
And just some of those gifts include all of my insanely detailed show notes for every episode of The Grenade Show, Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Plus, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, random bonus video drops, and of course, the Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events, and you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription, cancel any time, give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into funding the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So if you like what we're doing here on The Stoop, or the work and effort that I put into the WrestleCopia brand in general, or maybe you're just looking for those aforementioned gifts, I'd appreciate your guys' support in helping me pay some of the bills to keep the WrestleCopia podcast network and all of the great shows here up and running for the months and the years to come. And now with all of that done and out of the way, time for another fun-filled week here on the Wrestling Stoop. The man himself, Bob Roof. Bob, great to be talking with you again. Well, thanks, Ray. Good to talk to you again. Looking forward to sharing some more, uh, I won't want to say ancient history, but uh, certainly a ways back. And uh, time to try it out for another look-see. I imagine anytime anybody shares their own history, they don't want to refer to it as ancient. So I totally get where you're coming <laughs> from there. <laughs> yeah, it's getting up here and going out in the snow to, to go to uh, man my school bus for special children. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel my years when that wind's blowing, but. Uh, it's, it's worth it. I mean, uh, it's not like I'm walking them to school. We are on a on a heated bus, so it's just getting there that's the yeah. problem. Not walking in the uh, 10 feet of snow uphill both ways? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we mentioned at the end of last show this week, we're going to try to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. You're coming back from your tour of Japan late November of 1970 into 71. Before you go to Amarillo in the summer, I was going to touch on a lot of the names and matches that you had over the course of the next the first six months of 71 here. But before we get into any of that, I know we were talking off air and you mentioned you had some, you had an epiphany perhaps of some of the things that went down when you were talking a few weeks ago about your trip to Australia, Bobby Shane and uh, Tony Colony and whatnot. And uh, I wanted you to share that here with everybody. Well, good. Thanks, Ray. You know, you gave me the uh, impetus for that epiphany because I had remembered it the same way all these years. What happened, the way I described it, that was my memory. And I never, ever had a reason to investigate or look deeper or try to find out if there was something that I wasn't aware of. If you remember the story, I, when I got there, Shane and uh, Colony, the promoter, were in the wrestling office, and I walked in, and Shane was surprised to see me, but uh, Colony... Uh, seemed to be like he didn't have an idea who I was, and he was fairly cordial. And I had assumed, only for this reason, I couldn't figure out how I could possibly have been blackballed as being having a drug problem, because, first of all, there was no drug problem. I never even, I don't remember ever talking to a policeman in Australia, for that matter. So, uh, I mean, even a wrestling fan who happened to be a police officer, so... 
So, yeah, it was mystifying. I always try to figure out what causes things, you know. So I figured, it had, what, what could it be? This Kalani didn't know me. The, the wild card was Shane. And I was assuming that he still had some hard feelings from the deal with Jack Briscoe hooking up with his, his, uh, his valet. Right, uh, or, the Sherry. Yeah, the Sherry, and that because Jack and I were hanging out and, and uh, we actually had uh, one of their assignations was over at my apartment that maybe Bobby was, you know, carrying a grudge. And now I look back on it, and I really don't think that's the case. What happens when you ask me what Bobby Shane's motive might be, and you, you start talking about uh, him being in Florida, and you, you, you opened up a whole new file that had information in there that didn't directly pertain to this particular case. But what you made me realize was that Bobby Shane had gotten over in Florida. And because he was over, it's a place you can go back and you start out immediately. I mean, the first week you start out back on top. Right. Uh, and the main event matches. So you start making that top buck right away rather than have to go to some territory where you have to get over. And you're not booked in the main event for maybe a month or two months. So you're not making that top dollar. So Bobby didn't. Bobby was was a consummate professional. So he wasn't going to jeopardize that. Let me aside just a little uh, and say that the other thing is, I never heard one negative thing about Bobby Shane. Nobody ever, I, nobody knocked him. Nobody. He also was uh, in a relationship with a dear friend of mine, Louise Bennett. And Louise, uh, we've been friends since 1970. She was a ticket seller and taker in Fort Lauderdale when I first went down there to Russell. We've been friends ever since. And Louise didn't date lightweights or, you know, I mean, she didn't see people that weren't have, have some quality to them. So sure. that was more, more evidence that didn't match up. And, and like I say, there's never anything bad about him. Plus, Bobby was, again, a consummate pro. I, one thing I did figure out, I think part of my, not dislike, but my lack of appreciation, that's the way to put it, came from the fact that he looked like anything but a pro wrestler. Uh, he was, uh, and now this is Bob Roop with four or five years of experience talking that, um, you know, he looked, he, he looked like he could be an accountant or a landscape designer or, you know, <laughs> anything. He didn't look, I mean, he wasn't pudgy or, but he wasn't muscular either. And he wasn't big. I mean, he, I don't think he weighed over 200 pounds or not much more. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like six, three or whatever. Now I understand George Goulister, you know, for example, the promoter's son, you, you get people in there that don't look anything like an athlete of any kind. It's not what they look like. It's what people perceive them to be, the wrestling fans. Right. And later on, I realized that my perception of Bobby and my little bias because of coming from an athletic background where even lightweight wrestlers were muscular and, you know, and, and very, very athletic, that um, he didn't look the part. And that was just being a mark on my part. And I was, I was wrong to even think of that. I should actually have looked in the other way, uh, other direction and said, hey, a guy with that, what I consider limited physical appearance, that can go out there against guys, you know, that are uh, baby faces that are bigger than him and, and become a credible threat to him, certainly must know what he's doing in the ring. So my prejudice was just, that prejudice was just ignorance. And lack of uh, it was like also lack of experience, but what I realized was that 
Eddie Graham booked me in Australia. And Bobby knew that because I told Colony that, uh, the person we met. So Bobby's not going to do anything to jeopardize. In fact, I'm even speculating, maybe Eddie Graham sent Bobby to Australia. Because I know that when Cloney first purchased the territory, Mark Lewin and Ken Curtis were still in, in the works. I don't know if Mark was a booker. I don't remember. But I did hear the story about Cloney having to fly Ken Curtis back to Hawaii to pick up, uh, <laughs> restock his drug, his drug portfolio and spent three grand doing it. Oh so, you know, now think if Graham's back in Florida, he's hearing these kind of stories and Colonials have money. And Eddie hears that Colony might be using that as an excuse. Like I have to uh, fly Ken Curtis back to why that's why I don't, in other words, using these, uh, uh, the way these guys are ripping them off, using an excuse to not have the money to make pay Mr. Graham. And I think that's why he sent me over there. But he also might have sent Shane over there to replace Lewin. Uh, I'm going to do some investigation. But Jeff Barnett, Mark Lewin, uh, Eddie Graham, and uh, that whole way that Barnett came out of Australia to Florida right. and Georgia. Uh, and Mark Lewin, and we'll get there down the road. Mark Lewin was booker there in Florida for a couple of days before he, he, he absolutely just didn't want it. They kind of forced him in there. And he, he self-destructed in about three or four days where they had to get him out of there. Oh, wow. We'll get into that. Yeah, we'll yeah. get into that. So, I mean, there was a lot of things going on that I wasn't considering at the time. So uh, here's what I'm thinking happened. Bobby was surprised to see me. Uh, his, his jaw did drop down. I don't mean, a, I don't think a foot. Because he, <laughs> you got to think, well, I, I, I heard this guy wasn't coming. So right. here he is. What, what, I, anybody would be surprised. Colony, I don't know if he was, you know, he was a businessman. He sold cars or something, but he was a he was a successful businessman. Right. So he certainly knew how to knew how to maintain his cool and and whatever. So he didn't show me any animus. He didn't show me any hostility or anything at all when I was in the office. But when he did call me, one thing I said in the story when we talked about it was that he was. I don't want to say drunk, but he obviously been drinking. He was slurring his words. And when I brought up Eddie Graham's name, he said, F Eddie Graham. He was hot. He was like, <laughs> F him. So Eddie Graham sent me there. Eddie Graham guaranteed me 1400 bucks. So what's the way? So Colony, after I left, Colony might have been looking. Maybe he forgot the details. I don't know how much Shane involved him in the actual detail of whoever, all the people that were there, because I was a, supposedly a, a canceled project that uh, he hadn't even had to look at anything about what about me or anything about me or what was going on. So when he did have a, a chance to look and saw I was making 14, he might not even remember that I was supposed to make 1400 bucks when I walked in the office. When he looked at that afterwards and he sees that Eddie Graham's the one that booked me there, he, by this time, he's realized that it, they sold him, uh, I said, a pig and a poke, basically a dead pig and a poke. So he got hot. And that's why he said, I can't pay you more than 600 bucks a week. I th and I don't think that had anything to do with Shane. Again, Bobby was too smart to, and first of all, I think he was, he was definitely a professional. And in wrestling, man, if you tell anybody anything, uh, it's going to get out. And if you, even if he told it to Colony, where Colony might have gotten the information was that everybody knew when Barnett was there, Barnett got drugs himself. 
from places. Everybody knew that there were drugs everywhere, and I don't mean heroin. Uh, there was no cocaine around that I knew of, but hash and marijuana were just, I don't know, almost like, you know, they were almost like legal, like if they'd been legal, but they weren't. They were so common, uh, and it was common knowledge. So once Colony took over, I'm sure there were people who came around, maybe looking for jobs with them that had worked for Barnett or whatever, that, that gave them a story about uh, how it had been and how Barnett had run things and all the drugs. And I'd been over there three times for Barnett. So, you know, I had to be, you know, if somebody was saying, oh, yeah, everybody on the crew was on drugs. And they might have been right. <laughs> there might have been, I don't know, there might have been one or two straight shooters who, you know, didn't want to you know, do anything. And But most of the guys were because it was tedious. It was tedious work. You were on planes all the time and you're, you know, you're on the road basically every day of the week. So. Colony might have gotten the idea that I was involved with the drug thing. And so when he, when it, Graham ran it by him, so that I was going to be coming over there for 1400 bucks a week, he said, okay, maybe at first, or maybe, maybe he knew immediately, or he probably, he looked into it and he looked for some way to keep that from happening because he didn't want to pay the money. And so he found out the stuff about me being possibly being, involved with this kind of drugs everywhere type association. And that's what he used to tell Graham. And that's, again, I don't think Shane had anything to do with it. So anybody out there who heard me accuse Bobby Shane of uh, being involved in any kind of untoward behavior, I apologize for having said that. And I think, again, Bobby, I never heard anybody in the business say anything negative about him. He, everybody respected him. And uh, he wasn't a real warm and fuzzy guy, at least not to me, but uh, he was a professional and people respected him. So I want to clear the record as far as what happened over there. I don't think Bobby Shane had anything to do with that, that he was professional and in every way uh, proper with his conduct. So the problem was between Graham, Colony, and I was kind of in the middle between those two. So uh, anyway, I wanted to just clear that up. Wow. After all these years, huh? you just uh, looked at it from a different aspect and kind of put two and two together, it sounds like. Now, I want to say one thing. When we were telling that story, when you were telling that story about Australia and whatnot before, even back then, every time Bobby Shane's name has come up, even though you know you were under the uh, belief that perhaps he had something to do with this whole situation back then, you've always said that he was a, a good businessman. He was a very much like a super professional guy. And uh, even the last episode, when we talked about the plane crash, we talked about Bobby Shane, I mentioned in passing, I just said, you know, they lost one of their, a top heel, a top wrestler. And you, you know, 100% agreed that. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was, that was a huge loss of talent in Bobby Shane. So even with that in the back of your mind that, you know, this is what initially you originally believed happened in Australia, you've never, you know, downplayed the fact that Bobby Shane was a, a professional a businessman. You, you have said that he wasn't like the warmest guy to get to know, but again, sometimes when you're a businessman, that's the way it rolls. And you also always put over the fact that he was very much, you know, a top draw or at least a top talent in the territory down in Florida. So it's cool that, you you know, you, you've come to another possibility here in Tony Colone. He certainly sounds like, you know, it's funny. He's a wrestling promoter and perhaps I, I'm not sure I didn't really do any digging into his other businesses. But you, you, you think maybe he was a car dealer. And think about that for a minute, you know, a car salesman slash wrestling promoter. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. That would certainly be me, suspect number let, one. Let me add something else that occurs to me. 
The reason that Bobby might have been somewhat, somewhat distant and aloof was because Bobby had the office hold. And the office hold is Bobby called Florida to find out what the possibilities were as far as what kind of positions were open. Was there a place for someone like him? If there was, then what he did was he, he before he even started, before he even came there, he offered out a couple of possibilities about what uh, programs that he thought would work for him. He, and he would, he would have an idea through the grapevine or whatever already of what already was being seen. If he didn't have access to the TV, he would find out what already was being, you know, what kind of programs and who was being uh, matched against who. And he'd be looking for an opening. Then once he got there, I'm not saying he was at the office every day, but he would go to the, and see, the boys didn't go, if they went to the office, they didn't go up into the where the, the matchmaking was. They'd go in there and pick up their, they, they would be with Charlie Lay. Collecting uh, a paycheck. Bill Watts Company owner or whatever it was. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah they go to get their bookings and pick up a check. And I don't, I, and all the time I worked up there, I don't remember more than, Three or four, you know, like in a couple of years, I don't remember more than three or four wrestlers ever being upstairs in the office. And it was only for a short period of time. There wasn't anything where they sat down and we had a roundtable discussion or anything. So Bob, right. Bobby would be up there and what he would be doing, he'd be running his program, what he wanted to do and with who, who in the territory he thought he could work a program with. And he would constantly stay on top of it. And a booker, a good booker, you know, if it sounds good, it's you find out it's work in other places, or you know you sense it'll work, then you love it because this guy's doing your work for you. He's not getting paid for it. You are. So, you know, it takes a, a lot of some of the load off your work, you know, the amount of work you're required to do. So that's called having the office hold. And But in order to have that, Bobby can't leave the office, drive home, and then go and meet four or five of the boys or three or four of the boys and drive to a town and be talked because the boys want to talk about how they're getting all getting screwed on their payoffs. <laughs> and sure. They should all be on top and all this stuff. That's just, you know, that's not, that's just part of the thing from the office. hold. that's the outhouse hold. So Bobby wasn't going to be able to, to be doing that. So he had to keep some distance between them. And that's why I call him a, a real professional because some guys would try to do both. And those are the guys you try to be one of the boys and be part of management, even if you're just managing yourself. And when you do that, you're labeled a stooge because you, you, you talk, say the boys, you say one thing. Even if you sit there and you don't complain about pay, if you listen to what everybody else says right. and you don't say anything, and then you're, you're seeing going in and out of the office on a regular basis, the boys are going to say, well, he's just a stooge. And, you don't want that kind of, I mean, even if it's not true, you don't want that kind of, uh, uh, have to deal with that kind of, because people don't respect you. You know, when you're talking to them, they, mm -hmm. they don't, you don't have the credibility that you should. And so that's why Bobby was a little bit distant and everything. The other thing is I was green as grass compared to him. He knew more, probably he was a referee son. He probably knew more about the business when he was 10 years old than I knew after a couple of years in it. So um, well, yeah, I don't blame him for being a little distant. Uh, everything I've ever heard about him, not it wasn't really it wasn't really anything personal that I've ever heard about him, but it was just business wise, wrestling wise, that he was a consummate professional. So it's it's kind of mm -hmm. cool that you know you kind of revised your beliefs after you know after all this time because you're right. You know I didn't even put that together until you just said it too. Is 
Bobby was going to come back to Florida at some point. Why would he try to, you know, yep. all it took Colony to do when he spoke to Eddie Graham and said, oh, you're, yep. you know, your, your thing is, is that yep. Bobby Shane told me this. That yep. would have been the end of Bobby yep. Shane. So that totally yep. makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby, Bobby was way too smart. I mean, and I'm not saying that he was of that kind of person. The fact that my friend, dear friend Louise, uh, had a lot of affection for Bobby shows me that he had a, had to be have a good heart and 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 private, you know, and his, right. in sure. his relationship. Yeah, his relationship was a warm, right. warm, yeah, warm and caring person. Boy, in the wrestling business, you need to have your you know your shields up, and you can be out there like Terry Funk used to do, where you you look like Mister Friendly, you're laughing and ah ha ha. But you got your antenna up and you're watching what's going on because, you know, there's, there's always somebody around that is looking, oh, yeah. to, just waiting for something that they can get here and take back to the office to, to try to uh, improve their own position. So anyway, yeah, I'm glad I got that. I, I feel Bobby, better because I am too. Bobby, Bobby didn't deserve it. No, that's, that's pretty damn cool. And it's pretty cool of you, Bob, to, you know, openly admit that so quickly here just after we recorded those the shows about Bobby Sheen. But again, I go back, even when, you know, that was the belief, you never really badmouth them as far as being a professional wrestler goes. A lot of people would do that. I don't like the guy, so I'm going to just, you know, tarnish everything I can about him, and you did not do that. So that's, a, you know, credit to you, I think. But uh, certainly great to hear that you've come to a different conclusion now, and it's really great to hear that Bobby Shane remains untarnished as far as I know, and he was a hell of a, a worker and a hell of a, a pro. So, yeah, very cool. I feel better too, Ray. I mean, I got that. If there was any lingering resentment, not resentment, but, you know, at the time I was fighting for my reputation right. when I went there because sure, yeah. the luck I had in finding that, that wine steward in, in Hong Kong and then getting hooked up with the Australian embassy people who got mm -hmm. me into Australia was very, very lucky. And I, I managed to keep my reputation because I tell you, even now, if that had gone through, there might be people saying, oh, there's this guy out with a podcast, yeah, a wrestler from way back, a guy named Bob Roop. Oh, yeah, Bob Roop, that drug guy. The guy, yeah, got <laughs> kicked out of Australia because of drugs. Yeah, oh, that Bob Roop. I'm telling you, that would be the case because it just never dies. Think all the stuff that's been said about Flair and, and Hogan and, you know, all the guys that just there's just people out there waiting, you know, with a right. slang and arrow to, to launch it to somebody. So, yeah. Anyway, well, thanks, Ray. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I mean, that was that was very cool to get that out in the open. Um, but I guess we will uh, head back into uh, the plan for this week at this point, Bob, if you'd like to. We're going to bring you back from Japan, your first, very first tour of Japan back in the uh, fall of 1970. You're back home here in the States after a, a wild uh, time there in South Korea as well. Uh, you returned from Japan on November 23rd. At least that's the first result I see of you here. In 1970, a little more experienced, I'd say. You certainly uh, saw a different lifestyle over there in Japan, but also the way everything played out in the ring as well. Uh, who was that? Was that Mr. Was it Okuma that you, she had the first match with over there? I can't remember who it was. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because yes. you're going to see him here in 71 in Florida as well. How was that when you saw him again? Because it looks, I, I believe I remembered results that I, I came upon that you actually work him here in Florida. Maybe, I don't know, the next few months after you met him there in Japan. I'm, I'm assuming the match went a little differently. We worked several times. I was looking at, at matches today. I was trying to figure out the first time I wrestled uh, a particular one of the guys we're going to talk about. And I came across Akuma's name, I think, two or three times. 
And you know what? We both forgot. We both acted like we forgot it happened. <laughs> uh, we just went out and had a we we just went out and had a match. <laughs> you know, so you, I so you didn't first, walk up first, to him and say round two. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Bob son. <laughs> I didn't walk up and say, "Hey, have your bruises healed yet?" You know, uh, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's no place to go but uphill after that first right. match. I just you, thought it was uh, the irony of it all. Like, you know, he was the first guy in the tour. You told the story about you guys swinging like windmills for however long the match went. <laughs> beat the crap out of each other out there. And then turned around a few months later, and he's over here in Florida. Well, like, what are the odds? Of all of the you know Japanese talent that came through the States, Okuma comes in here, and he's working Bob Roop, you know, again. Well, you know, I think, by thinking about it, I was just still a babyface, right? Yes. Yeah. So... Yeah. Now, if he's pulling my hair, I wasn't going to jump up and beat the crap out of him. No, like I did not in lay Japan. There, lay there and take it. <laughs> well, I'm sure he enjoyed it a lot better on this side of the ocean. Yeah, you know, I'm so sure. His country. <laughs> Maybe he thought I was mad at being in Japan or something. But, uh, you know, I don't remember the matches. I, I never forget that one in Japan. But, right. Um, I don't remember our matches in this country, so uh, they obviously went they went okay. So uh, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit here. Now, a lot of 69 and 70. Now, you did some tag teaming a little bit there. You wrestled uh, the likes of Dante and Mephisto and whatnot. But for the most part, you did a whole lot of singles wrestling here. But after you come back from Japan, you cut your teeth in the tag team division quite a bit. I don't know if that was some way to kind of maybe learn another step here. I'm not saying you hadn't worked in tag matches before, but it seems more prominent now. I'm not sure... If there was something Eddie Graham was going for here with that type of booking, if it just worked out that way, was it just another piece? You, you learned to be a baby face. Now get the art of the tag team down, and then you know eventually we'll turn you heel and you know get the full circle. I'm not. I'm not really sure. I just noticed you do a lot of tag teaming here. Was there a method behind this? Do you know? Do you recall? Am I just thinking too much into it? No, I can speculate that what you do. I did it myself as a booker later on. Is if you're trying to bring someone along real fast. For example, when I had Florida uh, the last year I, I worked uh, as a booker, I had Lex Luger. I had to get him over quickly. So I put him in tag masters when I could, and I'd surround him with talent. The heels would both be uh, experienced, and his partner would be experienced. The referee would be experienced. And actually, once I became booker, I acted as Luger's management or manager where I went out there to the ring with them so I could talk to him also. Mm-hmm. What I was trying to do was get, I was talking again, I was talking to him in the car every night, both going to the matches and coming back. I was giving him a seminar on learning how to work. And because I needed, we needed somebody quick. He looked apart. We didn't have anybody. We didn't, we were real short of talent. So he, this guy looks fantastic, but he, you know, he didn't know what to do. So, by surrounding, and I think they were doing the same thing with me, by putting me in there against, say, Matsuda and Duke Kiyomuka on one side, and me and, well, I don't know, Jack Briscoe or whoever it might be, but an experienced wrestler on on, on my my side, and then having um, a referee also who's experienced. Who can, and when I say that, referee Sue Schwartz many times told me what to do in the rank. I mean, he would tell me, follow him. You know, just like the, back, the heels backing away, and I'm hanging by the ropes, and, and not, I'm not sure what to do. Stu would just whisper, come up and close enough and just look at me and just kind of whisper, 
follow or, you know, he looked like he was talking about something else and he just told me to follow the guy. So what do you do when you set up that uh, scenario? You involve the, the teenager in an adult situation where uh, he sees what it feels like to be in that, uh, that kind of environment, get used to it. And also uh, you're, you're doing your part of it. So you learn how to do at least your part of it. And, but you're also witnessing what everybody else's part is, what your partner does and what the two heels do. So that when you later, when you turn heel, you have an idea that maybe you have one dominant heel and one less, uh, you know, kind of second fiddle. And you can see what those two roles are. So it was advanced. Uh, it was advanced learning. I think that's what they were doing there. Okay. It's very clear that they were pushing me because I beat guys that, or I didn't get beat by guys that would probably have beaten someone as right. new as I was that didn't have my background. Yeah, by having the Olympic background, uh, that gave me credibility. If they could just get me to where I could work quick enough uh, or you know, soon enough, that they, could, they could start making money with me. That was the goal. It wasn't, we love Bob, we're going to try to make him a fortune. There's no, right. we got a horse here that maybe we can get to you know pull the wagon sure, yeah. and make us some money had nothing to do with looks because Chris Taylor came in and, you know, Chris oh, was wow. a much better, was much better amateur than I was. But Chris looked like Chris was not was a big boy. Jack, not, it wasn't Jack Briscoe in his looks. Chris had some uh, hormonal problems and, uh, you know, he was, now this guy was about 450 pounds. He was about six, five, but about probably 320 of it was a muscle. But he, he had the extra weight on him. He really didn't look like the great athlete he was. Uh, if you saw him sitting down on a park bench, you might think, oh, look at that big fat guy. I mean, I, I could go slap him because I can run. He could never catch me. Well, he, yeah, Chris would catch you. Uh, Three-time national champion in college. He could only wrestle three times because freshmen weren't eligible back then. But three-time national champion and then 1972 Olympics, uh, Greco-Roman heavyweight, mm -hmm. you know, just and a good guy. And he got in pro. I had a match with him in Tampa. But again, the point with Chris is that as far as looks, he was the furthest thing from a Jack Briscoe type, nice looking Lothario type guy. Right. But he was a baby face. And he had the, now he would have been a great heel too if he if he had lived. His maladies caught up with him. And unfortunately, he had a, a shorter life than uh well, yeah. could have hoped for. Yeah, for those who but, don't uh, know, good. Chris Taylor, I, th I think he passed away something like 28, 29 years old. Yeah, yeah. And he knew, he knew that, uh, he knew it was coming. It's like Andre did. Uh, they knew, both of them knew that the end was, they knew basically when they were going to be going, which is, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a horrible thing to have to be carrying around. But, but anyway, Chris was, uh, uh, if I ever, worried about my looks in terms of like I didn't feel like attractive as a wrestler as an athlete and then you look at Chris or you look at look at I mean, again this isn't a knock but look at look at someone like Louis Tillette uh Louis was I think about five seven uh mm -hmm. 190 pounds uh shoulders about a foot and a half wide the hips about a foot and three quarters wide a little gut on him uh no biceps uh Pasty skin, just had uh, jowls. Uh, yeah, but he went somehow out a staple here in Florida. He, yeah, he went out in the ring, and when he got it, people cheered for him. And 
And there are people, well, you don't have to be big to be tough. Uh, the tough man contest that uh, we talked about fighting in that one in Tampa, we also promoted a couple of them. And there, wasn't, there was never the big, big guys, the big muscular guys that won. It was always a middleweight guy, 170, 165, 70 pounds, who had the conditioning and was fast. Uh, and the big guys would blow up. The big guys would go out and do like Okuma and I did, try to windmill their opponent and beat him up, you know, beat him into the ground. And all the all the uh, smaller guy had to do was avoid him until the guy blew up and then just eat him alive. Uh, yeah, it's not size that's that's uh, the determining factor. Uh, it's what what a person's got inside. So uh, anyway, I don't know where where we started on that one. Yeah, I don't know. I was talking off. about tag team wrestling, and then we—I don't even know where the hell. <laughs> yeah, no, we, made no. a, we made a wrong turn at Albuquerque, I think. Here, what they um... did, what they were doing, was they were grooming me like I was doing Luger. They were grooming me uh, big time. That's what they were doing by putting me in those tag matches. Well, I was kind of curious. I was wondering if I was reading too much into that, but that—that that was kind of my thought process. Let's you know move Bob along and see what else we can do here, because yep. you can tell. As we look at the results here, as we continue on over the months, this next several months, you start getting in there with the uh, the big players, the heavy hitters, uh, certainly. Yep. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I wanted to talk about, well, first let's talk about your opponents for the next three or four months more often than not. I'm not sure if there was any storylines, if you will, going on with the television or whatnot. But boy, did they marry you guys, uh, you and various partners with the likes of J.C. Dykes and his Infernos, Rocky and Curtis Smith. Do you have any memories of those guys? I, there's little to no footage of them out there, but you know they're put over so well as one of the greatest you know heel tag teams of their era. I'm just curious, like you worked them quite a bit here. Do you remember if there was like some kind of story along with this, or were they just giving you one of the top tag teams to work with to keep you learning? I think that was it. I didn't. I don't recall any. In fact, I'm pretty sure we didn't have an angle. Certainly not one. We might have had one that lasted a week, but you know, like a week. I don't. We we would be able to tell if we had a return match, like in that same building. The next mm -hmm. week, we came back. That would result from some something having happened in the first match, that necessitated a second match, like right. a say belts title match. Titles had been at, at stake, but no, those guys. There was a formula they had that was all the same. Uh, Rocky and Curtis were not that different in size. It wasn't like Andre and uh, Wee Willie Wilson. You know, it was two guys that were fairly close in size. They dressed exactly the same to mask on. So, you know, they they could build a ton of heat uh, and then get a big comeback and then do a deal where one of them gets, basically it looks like he's finished. He's out, except for some reason, the referee in there to count him down. And while the referee's for whatever he's doing, getting the other baby face out of the rope or whatever, uh, they pull the, the unconscious one out of there and the other guy in the in the mask and the, the outfit goes in and lay, rolls in the ring and lays there like he's the one that's knocked out. Well, the, of course, the fans go nuts. You know, they just they, yeah the old and, switcheroo. Uh, yeah, the switcheroo. And I tell you, the guys that were and the thing about everything was J.C. Dykes and well, whoever he had. He didn't always have. He had Frankie Kane before mm -hmm. uh, Curtis Smith, and they they were excellent at their timing. These guys, I mean, you know, because if you aren't, you middle the hell out of the referee. People are screaming at the I'm telling you, they're screaming at the referee. Uh, you look, turn around, <laughs> turn around, I'm going to kill you if you don't turn around. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, he would, he would have to ignore all that. Well, if he only had to ignore it for, say, a couple of seconds, then no problem. And with JC's teams, uh, the, the referee knew that. He knew that he could count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And when he turned around, they would have already made the switch and the scene would be uh, set up to where he didn't have to look like a total idiot for, you know, standing over for 10 seconds with his right. back turned. The teams that couldn't do that, it just it was an abortion. It just didn't get over. The referee saw it or he had to pretend that somehow he was struck blind when he turned around. Uh, yeah, and it, everybody lost credibility. Uh, the fans were just disgusted. Rather than having heat, you had disgust. And they weren't mad at the people they were supposed to be mad at, which was the heels. They were mad at the promotion for doing stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, that was the worst kind of thing. Well, JC and his group were always very good. Their timing was excellent. Of course, having someone like Frankie Kane, that guy was a genius uh, in wrestling and uh, in life in a lot of ways. Uh, growing up on the streets, so what a story that guy had. Great guy. But they were. I don't remember any details, again, because the matches went well. Right. The heat was in the right place. The heels got their heat. The babyface got their credibility. The fans got a good show. And they got their money's worth for that match. Gave them what they paid to see. Well, they must and, have uh, really you could, had the crowds on fire. You're talking about all the old the old school gimmicks with the heels. It was an art form, really. The old heel tag team was. Yes. It's been lost over the years, sadly. You know, just some of the things you're explaining. I mean, it's commonplace nowadays, but even, you know, and it had been done before then, even back then. But I, I know I've heard the heat on some of the old 16 millimeter footage from the Florida Territory, from Georgia, from Mid-Atlantic. The heat was there for tag team wrestling, waiting for that hot tag back then. But I was looking here. You know, you got a good manager in J.C. Dykes. He's going to piss the crowd off, whether he's on TV or he's standing ringside. You got the Infernos, by all accounts, one of, you know, a very solid team here, heat getting tag team here. And at some point right. here, over the next two, three months, and you probably don't remember this because it seems kind of obscure, but they work a third Inferno into this storyline, a guy by the name of the Super Inferno. And I'm not really familiar on him. Uh, he wrestled also as Killer Carlson, Crusher Carlson, Carl Carlson, very clever there. Uh, but it looks like he'd wrestled maybe nearly 20 years by this point. And they write him out, Danny Miller, well, one of your tag team partners, going to unmask him in February and he's going to leave. But he's he's also worked into six mans and whatnot with you, and I don't remember if you have any memories of that or not. No, I don't. I'm sorry. Okay. No, you're fine. It seems very obscure. He comes in specifically, it looks like, to do this, and then he's gone. So I could see how a third mask man really isn't something you'd remember. But I just thought this, for the time period, again, I go back to, like, you go look at New York and the, the angles they were running. This is so much more, I don't want to say complicated, but there's a, it's more elaborate. Here, you got, you know, well, we got two mask guys. What's better than two mask guys? Get a third one and bring him in there. So, yeah, yeah I, I yeah. could see the heat that would have got. And J.C. Dykes just, uh, you know, making the crowd just, oh, so riotous uh, in all of these matches. Because you teamed with the likes, I mean, just the who's who, really. Jose Lothario, Jack Briscoe. I mean, up and down, I'm looking at this here. But I wanted to talk to you about some of your tag team partners throughout this time period, if that's okay with you. Of course. It was great. Uh being put with those guys. I, I wasn't intimidated, but by the same token, I should have been probably. I took it not for granted, but it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and the other thing, the other factor was like, if I was tagging, tagging with Jack, someone like Stu Schwartz or whoever the referees were, and 
whoever the heels were. I knew that there were plenty of people there to lead me through the match where I, I wasn't going to have to worry about it. Right. I, and I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about it. It just didn't feel it didn't feel necessary. Uh, it all seemed to be, to work out pretty well. I, I learned enough to follow. Uh, I could follow a heel when they were they were telling me what to do in the in the ring, and I could pick up. I was starting to learn what I should do, and without being told. So I was learning to trade. I was learning my trade. I still I've been thinking a lot after years of not thinking about it at all hardly. Uh, since you and I have started on this, Ray, I've been thinking about one thing that is, is still I kind of chuckle about is that my attitude was I didn't care about money. I didn't care about fame. I didn't care about being on top either. I didn't have any of the normal ambitions that pro wrestlers have. I had none of them. I wanted to travel, and that was basically it. A free um, ride. It didn't matter. <laughs> well, it was, you know, you go to a place, they pay your, you go to Japan, sure. they pay your transportation, mm -hmm. they put you up there, they pay you to be there, you get to go out and work 10 minutes a day, and the rest of the 24 hours you have to play with, what's, what possibly could be wrong with this picture? Absolutely. And while you're there, you get to visit all these different cities, different islands, different, you know, it's great. What, what could be better? Uh, Bret Hart. We were inducted in the Waterloo Hall of Fame, the Lou Fez uh, Hall of Fame, the same year. And uh, looking at Brett's uh, stats a little while later, uh, I saw that he, he he was in New York for, for 14 and a half years. My entire career, now active career, you and I talked about this before. Yes, my career was about two decades, 20 years. But I was active for 15 years straight. Uh, all those 15 years, I never had more than, except for an injury of, of one time, a knee operation. I was out three or four weeks. Uh, except for injuries, I, I I never took a vacation. So 15 years straight. Well, in those 15 years, I went to 12, 13 different countries. So Russell all over the United States. Uh, I, I couldn't have fathomed. Even, I don't care, making 100 grand a year. I couldn't have fathomed just staying in. And again, I'm not knocking Bret Hart here. Don't get me wrong. I admire Bret. He did great, you know. He's a guy, great career. But that wasn't my deal. And uh, it wasn't my motivation. So if I didn't like the way I was being treated in a promotion, there was no problem. Just go, just go ahead and leave. I don't know what the, how that relates to those to going back to my early days, but maybe because I didn't have that driving urge like oh i want to be on top i want to be on top i want to be on top or i want to make big money right away uh that being in those matches didn't have the kind of importance to me like oh i've really done something here i just kind of took it as part of uh not what i had coming because i didn't have anything coming except i did work hard i did what was responsible i showed up i, I did stretch a bunch of marks that i wish i wish i wish i hadn't but i did i did uh, my part to show is loyal to the business, would stand up for the business. So the things that were happening, uh, I felt like I'd earned. And the other thing I knew from day one that I liked the pay because it was a heck of a lot more than I was making in college, which was nothing. I, though I liked it, I knew that it wasn't fair. Uh, I knew what the percentages were supposed to be, and I knew the payouts weren't fair. So, but I didn't let that bother me because, again, it wasn't that wasn't my reason for being in the business. You start out with what I, what I thought they were doing. I'm curious of what they thought they were teaching me 
was based on them assuming I had the same motive as everybody else, wanting to get to the top as soon as possible and to make the most money as I could as soon as possible. But I never told anybody what my motivation was. I'm not sure I even knew it myself. I just knew that those things were important to me. Sure, you like being on top, but you know what? You know one of the problems of being on last? You have to wait until everybody leaves before you can leave. Especially if you're not if you're yeah, even if you're a baby face. You you have to wait till the fans leave before you can leave. So if you're if you're in Miami and you're driving home, you can sometimes you don't get out of the building until ten thirty, eleven o'clock. You got a five hour drive ahead of you. So that that part about it, I didn't like that part. And it wasn't worth being in the main event to me to have that match. Right. Uh, so that, and, you know, again, that any wrestlers out there going, oh, Rube, what a, what a smuck you are. You know, what were you doing in the business taking up space that somebody like me could have had? Well, uh, but, hey, to each his own, right? Right, yeah. Some people are just in it because they're a mark for the business, too. They just, they're happy to be there. They're, ha- you know, they're, they're fine. They're, yep. Whatever their placement is on the card, you talked about you don't really care about the main event. Some people don't care that they're the prelim guy, just as long as they're part of the business or whatever, or maybe they just the camaraderie or right, ro- rolling up and down the road. If you don't have a house, hey, this beats uh, you know trying to figure out where the hell I'm going to live for for a while. I, I could see everybody having a different aspect, a different look on, on things here, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about some of the random partners that you had during this time period. Uh, I hate to call them random because a lot of these guys you do team up with quite a bit, and there's a few names here I'm going to leave off because. I'm sure we're going to talk about them like 400 more times. So I wanted to focus more on guys that we may not be able to bring up again, at least as far as covering your career. Okay. So first off, the name Danny Miller sticks out to me. You team with him often here early on in 1971. Now, he'd already been in the business like 20 years by this point. And Danny's background was he spent a few years, I think, at Ohio State before joining the Army, I think is what he uh, he wanted. I know he joined the military. Uh, he reportedly had an offer also to play professional football. I don't remember which team, but anyways, his brother, Big Bill Miller, talks to Danny and says, why don't you come be a pro wrestler like me? Now, these are a couple of Fremont, Ohio boys, so they only lived about an hour from where I'm at right now. So I, I've heard the name the Millers quite a bit growing up from uh, old school fans in the in the area here. And so I wanted to, I was wondering if you had any stories to share about your time teaming or hanging out with Danny Miller. Yeah, Danny was... Uh... Uh, by you know, like a senior uh, advisor uh, advising, uh, say a a guy running a fraternity who's uh, welcoming in a new uh, pledge into the fraternity, and being there with advice and very friendly, nice guy, warm. The stories that stand out the best was that uh, when uh, and working in Florida, uh, we had to go to when we went to Puerto Rico, the baby faces had to fly with Lester Welch. And the way that came about was Lester Welch loved to fly. I, I think he loved that more than anything else in his life, including wrestling or anything else. And Eddie Graham gave me the impression that Lester kind of hooked him, or con- not conned him, but Eddie, Eddie was a pilot too, Eddie Graham. And I think Eddie had a plane. Lester went ahead and bought the plane. So Eddie, all of a sudden, all the baby faces, every time we go to uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, which was uh, every three weeks or so, uh, at least during the part of the year, uh, the baby faces have to fly with Lester. That means getting up at like seven o'clock in the morning, getting to the airport in Tampa, flying to Miami and topping out the gas tanks and then taking off from there and flying across 
open water uh, for about eight hours to get to Puerto Rico. Well, we did that several times. Uh, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times. Miserable flight. There was no bathroom on the plane. It was just miserable. You're tight and close. And, you're, you know, I, and I always took a book. Uh, we didn't have cell phones then. We didn't have Internet. But I took books. And, you know, there was, you could you had a transistor radio. Although, I don't know if you get any stations out there. But anyway, it was just it was miserable. Because that, you, you went and worked. You had to find a place to stay for a few hours because you're going to take off to go back to fly back home early in the morning. It was just miserable. One time we're flying, and Danny and I are on the plane, and Bob Orton Sr.'s on the plane, too. And I think Bob Sr. was a heel, but uh, anyway, he's on the plane because I don't know. And Lester tells us, uh, I've got to turn an engine off. So that's all he said, I've got to turn an engine off because which is good because, you know, when one of the propellers stops rotating, it has a tendency to get your get your attention pretty quick. Right. You really want to know what's, what's going on. It'd be really nice to know it ahead of time. So uh, he turned the engine off. So we're on one engine. And the reason I remember, I remember Bob Wharton Sr. was because he's in the back. And Sr. was a conspiracy theorist sure. anyway. He had right. all these. Oh, I talked about it before. Well, he's yeah. back there just... Uh, Tomorrow, this time, we're all going to be shark shit. You know, I kept saying that. Oh, shark shit. Yeah, tomorrow, this time. And so, I, like, that's what you really want to hear. Seems like I might have missed this earlier, but we had to land at a, uh, an Air Force base on, and uh, in Puerto Rico, and it was a uh, military base. You weren't supposed to land there. And they said, no, you can't land. And right. the rest of laughed. And so we landed, and all these jeeps come out with sirens and lights and people with guns and all that. And once they saw who we were, I think they maybe even TV went in there. So I think they recognized that we were the rustlers and that we weren't, you know, terrorists or anything. So uh, we had to wait for the plane to cool down enough that they could put oil into one engine that did work. Anyway, we were there for a while, and then we took off. We didn't get to the show until yeah, I did tell a story. When you get the show to like 10, 30, 11 o'clock, the show started at 8.30. And that was one I know, remember talking about J.C. Dykes, which kind of segues nicely and right. I have been talking about him a few minutes ago, working with, uh, with Psycho Negro. And now back at the time, that's another kind of epiphany that came from talking about it before. I talked about what a big deal it was that they went 45 minutes. But that was Bob at that time the rookie Bob or the inexperienced Bob, the non-booker Bob that was saying, oh, my God, how does a guy go 45 minutes with a manager? Uh, and looking at some of J.C.'s background, he had been a referee and he'd worked some matches. So, And the other thing is, say you're, we're at, you're at the baseball stadium in uh, San Juan and you got, oh, say 10,000 people there and you've got like a $60,000 $60, house and your part of it is, say, 200, 300 bucks. You don't want to have to tell those people, I'm sorry, uh, the wrestlers aren't here. Y'all go get your money back. So they'll do anything to keep from doing that. And that includes if they have to give them the show and it goes on until three o'clock in the morning. They stalled until we got there. And then we we had given the rest of the show. It got done, I don't know, 1230, something like that. And I don't think anybody was, I mean, that's bad for a town. I don't think it killed it. Well, it didn't because we went back three weeks later. 
So in order to go home, we had to stop. We could use that. He could use that second engine for a while, but it had an oil leak, so it was constantly o- overheating. It was going to continue as soon as it got low on oil. It would overheat, and if it didn't, you didn't shut it down. It'd catch on fire. So uh, <laughs> we had to fly home in sections. We flew to South Caicos and stopped, and I had again. You had to wait for the engine to cool off to put oil in it. And here's part of the Danny Miller story. Danny and I, we had several hours to kill. And so in South Caicos, I'd been there before. Uh, I don't remember if it was vacation or what, but I knew a guy and I knew how, how to find him. So we got down to the town and I found this guy's shop and uh, asked him to take us out uh, and to go scuba diving or snorkeling. Uh, beautiful day. The weather went, went too hot. Danny agreed to do that. He thought that'd be, I said, hey, look, you'd be fun. So we, we got to the boat. We we had, you know, fans of snorkels. We had our undertights, and we went out in the boat, and we went out on those, about eight or nine feet of water. It wasn't real deep. Uh, Danny and I both got in the water, and the, the guy the guy anchors the boat. He stays in the boat, and we're swimming, and there was a like a huge brain coral about the size of, uh, oh, say, about four feet wide and about six feet high. It's like it's circular. Uh, and it's huge. It's round. It's round. It's got a diameter of maybe three or four feet. So as we approach it, Danny, Danny and I are like next to each other. I go to the right to swim around it. He goes to the left. And as I go around the other side, there sitting in the water is a four-foot barracuda. Mm. And it's just it's just sitting there. I mean, not sitting there. It's swimming there, whatever. It's not moving. It looks nasty as it can be. But I know a barracuda. You really don't have to worry about them unless you've got flashing jewelry or something like that that looks like a fish. We didn't have any spear guns or anything. So uh, I looked at the I looked at the Barracuda for a couple of seconds to just look I'm not saying look back, but it was you know, it was a pretty big one. Four feet long is pretty big. So I looked over to my left where Danny should be, because he was swimming around the other side of the spring coral, and there's no Danny. The, by this time, the barracudas kind of slowly swam off. So I turned back around and go back to the other side. I'm looking for Danny on the other side of the coral. He's not there either. So I look. I can see the bottom of the boat. It's about 40, 50 yards away. And I don't see Danny anywhere bet- between me and the and the boat. So I stick my head out of the water. He's sitting in the boat in the back on the back cross stanchion or whatever. He's already got a cigarette lit. He's got his both hands. He's down over his knees. He's got a cigarette in his hand. He's just shaking. He's got his head. He's looking down. He's just shaking his head. No, no, no way, no way. I had to laugh. I almost choked on seawater. I had to laugh. He had to swim. I don't know. He would have set a world record for the forty-yard sprint swim in the Olympics because he had to get over. He had to get over there in about four seconds. But yeah, when I when I swam over to the back over to the boat, I said, Danny, come come on back in. I said, they're they're not dangerous. I said, no way. He said, you out of your mind? He said, so that that was one of them uh, with Danny. And the other one was we we're told that the plane was going to be repaired. That engine was going to be fixed, so it didn't like oil anymore. Mm-hmm. So three weeks later, we go to Puerto Rico, and same thing happens. The engine overheats. We fly most of the way with the one engine. And just coincidentally, uh, uh, we left earlier that time for some reason. 
So we ended up getting down there in time. We did have, we had to stop the Air Force Base again. I'm surprised it didn't arrest Lester on that one. We got the matches earlier that time, but by that time, I, I, I got upset because, first of all, I hated being on that plane. I'm claustrophobic, and I hated being on a plane that long. And I just, I told Danny, I don't remember where it was, but it was in the dressing room. I told Danny, I said, look, I'm not, I'm not going to fly anymore on this plane. On this plane. I said, I, I've got a wife and, you know, you know eight-month-old baby, a year-old baby. I said, uh, I'm not going to do it. And Danny said, I'm not either, which was unusual because, like, again, he was a, he was a veteran, and, uh, you know, you, you're basically telling the office. But I don't know how any office can insist that you fly with a plane that doesn't work. So Lester overheard us, and uh, I, I don't know what he did. I know he didn't like me. Uh, but I think he had to respect Danny. And his position was, you know, where, I mean, his position was impossible uh, in the wrong. You know, he's gonna, you want to fly these guys? <laughs> right. Risk, risk your life and all that? Yeah, and the second time, you know, I remember the second trip we took uh, uh, Ella Waldeck, female wrestler named Ella Waldeck, had went along and she wrestled Sherry Lee. Yeah, I think it's Sherry Lee, which Lester's and whatever secretary. She was a female wrestler. And I think, so Ella's on a plane with us and Sherry too. Ella had taken a job. She still wrestled from time to time, but she'd taken a job as security at a clothing store in Tampa. And she made a newspaper one time. A guy, uh, a guy about 230 pounds shoplifted something and went out the door and she went out after him and said, sir, stop. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to come with me. Uh, you're gonna, you're, you know, I'm, the police are on their way, and uh, he said, "After you and all that," and uh, she, so she ended up. <laughs> make a long story short, she ended up take, taking him down. By the time the police got there, she kind of say, "Help, <laughs> help, get this woman off me." She had an idol. She stretched him about three different ways. So that was a good story about her, and yeah. she was nice. She was nice enough on the plane. I mean, I wasn't gonna. I respected her. I mean, she was an older woman who had been there for, you know, she started the years, the business, I think, 30 years earlier. So, you know, I was, I was dealing with someone who had lived the history of something that I was just fairly new at. So, you know, I always appreciated people like that. And again, it was nice to have her because it was a new face. You know, another thing that was on the, the trip of all us guys, we'd been together, a lot of us, at least in the dressing room, some of us in the cars all week and we didn't have anything new to talk about you know it was just it was just it was boring to have that long trip with really there's nothing to see as you're out looking over water i mean it's not a big thrill you see a little small atoll or something a little island spring up unless look <laughs> that second engine goes out then that little place is going to start looking real good but <laughs> but uh I remember we had to stop uh, two or three times. Uh, we, so we started out at like five o'clock in the morning out of uh, San Juan. We got back to Tampa about 11 o'clock at night. What a night. What a horrible day. I mean, just a terrible Sounds day. Sounds like it. Oh, man. So you know, I was ready. To, I, I didn't want to, but, you know, I said, hey, you, I can't, I cannot risk my life uh, and, you know, my wife and my child depend on me. I, you know, I, they don't do something about it. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to refuse to go again. Whatever happens, happens. I don't think I don't know if I said I'm going to give my notice. 
I think I was going to risk getting fired. I just said, because, yeah, I think I said, yeah, I'm not going again. And Danny said, I'm not either. And I think when Lester heard Danny agree, we knew he could hear us. Uh, when uh, he heard Danny, I think he said, well, I'm not going to be able to do it, do this again. So uh, and that was one. And I, you know why I appreciated Danny standing up like that? Because not a lot of guys did. Danny wasn't an office stooge. Danny was, at the time, great guy, uh, really, really good man. But he was kind of a middle-of-the-card guy. And if he was in main events, uh, it would be in a tag match and or it'd be like a special semifinal match of some kind. He wasn't. I don't remember him being in angles with anybody. Now, I might be wrong. Uh, it's possible there was things going on that I don't remember my own matches. I, I don't remember all the other ones either. Uh, he might have had something going. But what I'm saying is that and, uh, here's another factor. He had, I believe, four daughters. And he had a home and four daughters going to school in Tampa. So it's a big deal if he has to leave. I mean, a big deal. It's right. not as big a deal for me. I've got He's an settled apartment. in there. I got you. He's settled in. So, yeah, for him to stand up and say, well, I'm not going to either. Uh, and they wasn't doing it to, you know, to say, I'm with you, Bob. Uh, you're some kind of. Uh, he was doing it because it was. <laughs> you're talking about you've got four kids to worry about. I've just got one. I, I appreciate that about Danny. Some of those are the stories with me and Danny. I might tell you in private. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're not too licentious, but uh, Danny was a good man. Let's keep uh, it that way, right? (laughs) Yeah, good talent, great guy. Oh, we just had fun. Uh, We had fun doing nothing, nothing illegal or whatever. But I don't, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I mean, it's okay. I can I can jump all over my own behavior, you know, because uh, I've already paid the price for it. I don't want to mess up anybody else. But uh, anything else about Danny? Let me think. When I was booking that last year, Danny was the, t- the guy getting the town. And oh, wow. uh, okay. so I saw, I saw him at the office every day and uh, still the same thing, uh, friendly. Uh, and uh, he was, by this time, he's retired from the ring. And it depends on whether a guy saved his money and had it invested where had an income because, you know, there's no retirement plan in pro wrestling. I don't know what his income status was. So he might have been at that place where you're either making some money or nothing at all. Right. But always a good guy. Nothing but uh, respect. Let's put it this way. Respect him and like him. Okay. And uh, without knocking anybody in particular, sometimes it's hard to do have both those those feelings for people in the business. Fair enough. Well, let's look at another name here. You teamed up with him fairly often throughout this time period. He worked uh, as Johnny Walker, rubber man Johnny Walker at times. He also worked under a hood back then as the grappler, but most people would know him better as Mr. Wrestling 2. Now, he got his start all the way back in 1956. He didn't even get the Mr. Wrestling 2 moniker until somewhere around 73, I think it was. So he was almost 20 years in the business before he really became well-known as wrestling too. And you teamed up with him here some, he wasn't wrestling too yet, but I was just curious. I'm sure you passed him, crossed paths with him even when he had the mask there, but just uh, curious if you had any memories of uh, Johnny Walker. I remember working against him because he was a technician, uh, just excellent with this. You know, he called the match. I think it was a babyface match, but he called the match and we did things and it was like a high spot match, you know, arm drags and, and moves and things. And he was just, he was really good. The match was good. 
Uh, he controlled it. He bled it. Did, I mean, I did my part, but um, he was the one in charge. He was the director, and and it was a good match. And I do remember working with him. I don't remember exactly, but I do remember that I admired his his ability, his technique, you know, his technical ability. Now, the other the the thing that was even think about Mr. Wrestling number two, his body, his body was still about the same as it was as Johnny Walker. Well, it was, of course, but I mean, when his wrestling name was Johnny Walker, he didn't have a big muscular body. I mean, he was stout, you know, he was stocky and I think, what, 5'10", 220, 230. You know, he was, uh, and had good, big, strong legs. That didn't change when he became uh, Mr. Wrestling number two. Now, the original Mr. Wrestling, Tim Woods, Tim had a, a, a pretty good build on him, when he, at least when he started. Uh-huh. Uh, he was uh, he had been an amateur wrestler in, in college, so he looked pretty good. And Johnny Johnny Walker, he had nowhere near the same kind of build. But you know what? He had a lot of charisma. I think about being able to uh, demonstrate inner fire and determination and all that with a mask on. I was you just can't thinking use, that, right? Yeah, you can't use your face. You can't grimace. You can't slit your eyes, you know, to look nastier. To be able to do all that with, with a mask on takes a lot of talent. And uh, he, he had it. Uh, again, maybe the 18 years of experience before he came upon that gimmick is what made him, gave him the ability to do it so well that he got over like a million dollars. I mean, he had those, that running high, that running D where he, you know, he'd be bent over, he'd run, oh, yeah. he'd lift the knee. The million-dollar knee lift. Yeah, oh, wow, what a beautiful move that was, you know, because it looked like, oh, it looked like it killed you. Anybody, you know, anybody could go down from that and stay down and get counted down and, you know, take a minute, a few seconds to, to snap out of it, you know. So, and that was good, you know, because you got beat by something that looks real as opposed to some guy hitting you somehow wheeze a little punch. You're supposed to lay there like you're knocked out. Mm-hmm. That just discredits everybody. So, yeah, he was he was uh, a, a good thing. He was good for the business. He's believable. Uh, the thing is, also personally, he was very nice. I told you personally, privately, his wife, although she did it for uh, anybody who would would ask her, uh, she you know, and she didn't do it for free. But she she also wasn't very wasn't real expensive. She made my first ring jacket for me. In fact, I think it was Johnny. Now I think about it, it's good salesmanship. I didn't have a ring jacket really, so he was the first one. I said, "You know, Bob, you ought to get some." I, had, I think I had Olympic rings on the back, and maybe my name—I don't remember. But you know, she didn't just make wrestlers' gear; she even did it for like country music performers and things. I think Porter Wagner, she made his stuff. So yeah, she, Olivia wow. Walker, I think her name was. Uh, yeah, she was a hell of a seamstress from what I understand. And yeah, there were a lot of wrestlers that, that mentioned that too, but I just remembered that just came back to me. I re- I read that somewhere. Well, she's also, she was also a very nice, nice person. Mm-hmm. I remember that very, very nice. I just felt, uh, she made you feel so welcome to be in her home and, uh, in her company. And yeah, you know, Johnny was, you know, they were couples. So Hey, yeah, I was Mr. Real, Wrestling 2 was big time, man. He was Jimmy Carter's mother's favorite wrestler, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you talk about, uh, you know, again, going from, here's a guy that's got all the ability, but he doesn't have the the key to open the door. And it was, it, he had to hide 
oh, this sounds horrible. He had to basically make what he nor what he typically looked like was not going to get him to no, the love level of, of wrestling two got to. Oh, no, you're so one hundred percent accurate. I, I know exactly where you're going with that. By concealing that, but, but all see here's the thing that shows why that's so unfair. Because the person in the mask was the same person without the mask, right? In terms of ability, but now it's a mysterious man doing it. So, oh, now it's completely different. And, it's, and the other thing, of course, is once uh, he started getting over, they started pushing him. And when everybody else, it's not just uh, you and the, you're, what you're doing in the ring, but all the announcers are raving and everybody's talking about how great you are and the greatest thing since sliced bread uh, to come along then, yeah, then that's how you get over, and that's how, and I was happy for him, and I think everybody that knew him was. Um, that oh, he, I, he, I, it's fair to say, I mean, that's just how, you know, especially TV works, you got to be cosmetically pleasing to a degree, and, you know, yeah. Johnny Walker, he had the, the balding hair, and by the time he was Mr. Wrestling 2, he was almost 40 years old. I mean, you know, it's not like that's yep. ancient or anything like that, but he's certainly not a spring chicken either. It served him well. I think he did another 13 years at least uh, wrestling after that under the hood. But, you know, another name that comes to mind in the same similar fashion, although he was a lot younger, but he had a, a early balding, was uh, Jerry Stubbs, who I think he worked with some as Mr. Olympia in the Mid-South Territory. Jerry Stubbs had a, a great body during that time period, but he had the uh, male pattern baldness going on for him. So they stuck him under a hood and he got over like Rover. Yeah, yeah. And he, he did. He was a good worker, too. Oh yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's isn't it, it's interesting. And you talk about you need to be cosmetically uh, pleasing, right? Or you have to go all the way in the other direction. We were talking about Chris Taylor. Now, Chris wasn't like ugly, but he was not. He wasn't. He was. He was extraordinary in his look. Let's sure. put it that way. A very unique he was, look for sure. Was huge. But you had people like the French Angel look like a you know a vampire or something. You had these people that were you know that were it was because they look really strange that uh, weird that oddities uh, if you will oddities yeah they were um, like from the carnival and then the days before pro wrestling that's where people those kind of looks that really couldn't fit into society without going out in public and scaring children and having people throw rocks at them. That's where they they did they that made a living mm-hmm. was on the carnival, right. uh, being being exhibits for shows. So uh, it's great the wrestling business came along and and provided a not just a good uh, occupation they could travel the world and and they were acceptable in a new light. This is you know they're a celebrity. They might be one of the uh, you know featured the ugliest man in the world. Yeah, he's also uh, people want to see him murdered so. Please bring him to our country so we can see him get beat up, you know, up close <laughs> and personal. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of nice that way. I think the Russian does open doors for a lot of people that might have not gotten any other opportunity without him. You know, I'm looking at some of the other guys you teamed up with here, and um, I know their names are going to come back again to us time and time again, like Jack Briscoe. So what I'm going to do is I, there was a couple of guys you said, oh, I have a story on him. So I definitely want to get a couple other names in here on this episode. And one of those being a guy that you wrestled uh, quite a bit here early on in 1971, Tarzan Tyler. It looks like you had a match with him. Amateur rules. That would be interesting. Also, some tag team matches. He's teaming with Dick Murdoch here, taking on you and, and Louis Tillette. And a couple other matches as well with Tarzan. So I was curious. 
You said you had some stories, or at least a story, on Tarzan Tyler. I was so hoping you could share that here with us today. Well, one of the things about Tarzan was that of all the people I met in the business, he was the guy that made me the most uneasy. Uh, not that he was threatening in any way. It's just a feeling I got from him. Uh, he, I worked with him. He was fine. Uh, I remember us. Well, he was one of the first people. In fact, I don't remember anybody else ever doing it, but just just a little technique. But in a match with him, uh, he had me grab his leg and take him down, but with my back fairly close to the ropes, where he's laying flat on his back. And as I pushed his legs up, he pushed me off uh, into the ropes, and he was giving me the, he put his feet out, he was giving me the springboard over the top of him. You know the move I'm right. talking oh, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of like a well, as, type deal. Yeah, and as my as I'm about to, he's just getting ready to straighten his legs out uh, and put me over. He said, "Whatever the next move he wanted me to do was." He said it right there, right in the middle of the move. You know, it was quiet. Nobody was. I hadn't done the move yet, so nobody was really reacting to it. And he just said, "I don't know, arm drag or something." And I thought it was. It was I mean, it just I heard it. I wasn't looking at his face. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a cool way to do it. And again, I was green to the business, but I never had anybody else uh, actually do that or talk to me and give me a, a you know a cue about what to do next. Well, yeah. In such a such a kind of a cool way, it was almost yeah. impossible to to hear him say or see him, even if you had a if you had a if you had a camera on his face with a blow up like. That finger we talked about on Japanese TV the size of a basketball, you still wouldn't be able to <laughs> tell, tell what he said. So I thought that was cool. Now, the other thing about Tarzan, he got to, he made such an impression on me that my first book uh, called Deathmatch, Tarzan is the main character. You meet him on page one. My first, well, it's the character. It's based on me, though. My first match is with this Tarzan. And uh, he's he's scary. He's scary as he's scary as all get out. Uh, and he's scary throughout throughout the book. And he's a real he's a real uh, he's a real character. Now, in the book, Tarzan came out to be scary, and deservedly so. He was rough. He was uh, he was a rough edge guy, and he, uh, he he's got a real background of what that goes back like fifteen twenty years with some of the other characters, like a uh, uh, one arena rat in the in the book. Uh, and uh, <laughs> sorry about that, but well, I'm sorry, folks. Groupie, uh, one of our, our arena rat. Is Everybody a, knows what it is, Bob. You don't have to go into detail. It's a term of affection, believe it or not. I mean, I know you've never heard it called that before. Any women out there going, oh my god, <laughs> in arena rats positive? What do you call girls you don't like? <laughs> uh, Oh, man, I'm sorry. Forgive me, folks. But uh, in real life, now, the real life, Tarzan, uh, I'm getting real serious here because that wasn't nothing to laugh about. I heard a story that he was, in, now, he was French-Canadian. Yeah. Uh, and he, he spent his first 10 years of his career, he wrestled in Canada uh, before he ever came to the States to work. But I heard that he was in a bar. I'm not sure where. Doesn't matter. But there was a guy that was giving him grief about the business, about pro wrestling. Tarzan knew that if he if he beat the guy up, he was going to get arrested, lawsuit and all that. So he just waited. 
and he waited to see if he was going to get an opportunity. And apparently the guy that was giving him the grief was uh, getting more and more loop drunk and uh, uh, was kind of uh, predictable in his timing. He'd get a beer. Uh, he'd take a, like two or three swallows of it. Uh, so Tarzan waited until the, the bartender uh, set the beer down and had his back turned, and there wasn't anybody else in the bar. The guy picked up his beer, and he put his head back, and he, it was like a mug, the kind with the handle, big, thick mug. And he, he, he lifted it to his face and closed his eyes and started chugging from it. And Tarzan went, was only about four seats away. He took two steps, and he hit the bottom of the glass with his hand as hard as he could and just kept going out the door. Wow. And I don't know. I Yeah, think about that. The guy's got the glass up in his mouth, and Tarzan hits the end of that glass. And uh, I'm, really, I'm sorry for telling such a horrible story, but I talked about earlier about feeling uneasy around this guy. And with that kind of a person who can do that kind of thing, yeah. uh, that's... <laughs> That's why, thank God, I have feelings to <laughs> let me know that, you know, that right. way I don't go out there in the ring and insult Talk about needing something. an antenna up on uh, some of these guys. Yeah, well, you know, again, working with him, he was fine. Mm -hmm. I didn't, he would, now he was six foot three and about 270 pounds. He's solid. He wasn't some little weasel type guy. And he, he was, you know, he was well built. Now he was 42 when I worked with him. I found I looked him up when he was born. So, but you know, the same year I worked with him and I got DQ'd, or he got DQ'd. I won the match. I wrestled him nine times. Or no, we wrestled him ten times. I won four, he won five, and we had a draw, I think. But they put me over this guy. Later that year, he and uh, Luke Graham won the WWF Tag Team Championship. Well, yeah, and, and and Tarzan had been up there back in the '60s as well. Worked Bruno in the main event. I right, think that, that's right. A, the story. I think the story in that one was uh, when uh, after the match too. And this had nothing to do with Tarzan, but that was when Bruno, the original WWW or the Capital Belt, got stolen out of Bruno's car. Was after that match later that night. But um, yeah, wow. Tarzan Tyler got to work the main event of the Garden. So that says a lot about his you know talent as as a top heel draw. When you can do it in New York City, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And now he's down here in Florida. He also worked with uh, Pedro Morales. Yeah, he was also WWF champion in the early 70s. Right, right. He was working with Pedro. He worked on main event in the garden with Pedro, too. So, yeah, he was a heavy hitter. And that's the same year that I'm actually beating this guy. And I'm a newcomer. Uh, and I know it's a work and all that. But I, what, I'm look, what I'm trying to get at, it's obvious they were trying to help push me. They were trying to do something. Uh, again, Tarzan in Florida was the Florida heavyweight champion. He was a TV champion. He was a brass next champion. And some of these two or three times, he was also the Southern heavyweight champion, one member of the Southern tag team championship. So this guy was a heavy hitter there in Florida. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I came even on a DQ, I mean, I'm a brand new guy uh, coming in there to, to do that. I look back at that on that and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm I'm happily surprised. Uh, I would think, and I think when he beat me, I don't think it was anything where he left me laying or anything. No, I think it's pretty obvious here. This, for for instance, at least the first match I have here with you working in January twentieth seventy one in Miami Beach, 
you're going over on Tarzan by disqualification in an amateur rules match. I think everybody can kind of figure out what happened there. You're you're the amateur wrestler Bob Roop taking on uh, one of the <laughs> one of the big heels of the time frame. Obviously, there was some cheating going on there, causing that DQ. Maybe Tarzan didn't play by the rules there, but it all starts there. But I'm looking up and down, and you're right. You're, it's, they're starting to incorporate all these names around you, whether it's on your side or against you in the ring here. And it, up and down, you're, the Funks come in, and you begin working against Dory and Terry Funk as well during this time period. And that's that got me to thinking. I noticed, I, I, don't, I, I didn't go back and see when Dory and Terry first started working in this period here for the Florida Territory, but they're here again, and they're here at least through March through May. And they're working you, Bob Roop, quite a bit here. You're teaming with Jack Briscoe. You're having a couple of one-on-one matches with Terry. And then all of a sudden, poof, in about a month's time, you appear in the Amarillo territory. Do you think Do you think your matches with Terry and Dory, did that have anything to do with it? Did they say, hey, we can use this kid, we can groom him, we can do something with him? Or was that maybe just like the Eddie Graham deal, like you said, he said, you know, he told him, send him down there for six months. I was just curious because I noticed here you are working Terry, Quite a bit here in the month of May in 71. And then by the end of June or beginning of July, off you go to Amarillo. I was looking at the, the stats today and I saw, I was looking through 70 and 71. And, and I saw myself in a single match against Dory Jr. in Florida. And I, I don't remember the match. And I'm thinking, how could I forget that? Well, again, it went, you know, it had to be a good match. Yeah. And against Terry and Dory, I don't remember that either. I wish there was some tape or something, but uh, if the matches went well, and they would, if Jack Briscoe and, and the two punks, uh, all I had to do was not, you know, have my shorts fall down or something, and <laughs> sure. it was it was it was going to be okay. Uh, but though, you know, again, they're putting me in fast company there. That's how I got to wrestle Johnny Valentine, you know, that early in my career, right? By having been in the ring. I'd already been in a single match against Dory, who was in the same card with Jack that night as I was with Johnny Valentine. This is all coming to me as I say this. I've already been in a single match with Dory Frank Jr., who's now the world champion wrestling against Jack Briscoe. And so, uh, yeah, I, that puts me up in that class, doesn't it, by association. Uh, even though I don't have anywhere near Dory Funk Jr.'s stature from having wrestled in different places around the country and, you know, the years he's put in, learn his trade and all. Uh, but again, pro wrestling show business and the show they were creating is I belonged in that status, which, you know, I'm glad for. Yeah, you, uh, you can't argue that because anybody can wrestle Dory Funk Jr. on TV as a prelim, you know, as a prelim guy, do a job for Dory on TV. Anybody can do that. But as I look here, it's main event caliber matches and you're teaming with Jack Briscoe, who's going to be the future NWA world champion. People could joke one of these things doesn't belong here. Maybe you even joke about that back in 1971, I think. I mean, you're with the Funks and Jack Briscoe. But again, you said you didn't really look at it like that. But I'm just looking at this like here you are. You're an up and comer, if you will, at this point still. You haven't really done anything to solidify that main event spot with NWA World Champions. But here you are. So certainly they had some sort of plan here. There was some grooming being done. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take a real segue here because it just came to me. But it's kind of important. In 72, how did my attitude evolve to where later on all that stature and all that meant even less to me? And I'll tell you what it is. It just came to me. When I wrestled Adnan Casey in February and May of 1972, 
almost got killed over there. Right. I mean, I came real close to getting murdered. Saddam Hussein, that guy that got hung for crimes against humanity, who killed over 120 million, I mean, 1,200,000 people, 600,000 of his own people uh, in, his, in his 20-some years of being the, the murderer in charge over there. Mm-hmm. He was a he was a promoter of the matches, and after I beat his champion, Adnan Casey, which Casey asked me to do, <laughs> very questionable. I always wanted to ask him, why did you do that? Uh, Saddam tried to murder me. That's so right, after- guys. Uh, Bob Roop worked for wrestling promoter Saddam Hussein, by the way. Just- <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and it was a big deal. The wrestling was their way of promoting their government. Right. They had the, they had this champion, uh, and wrestling's a big deal over in the, that country. It's like football here. And so uh, that his, their champion lost, that was a big, big blow to the political party. It made the party look weaker. So uh, Now, I want to do a whole show on this, Bob, so I don't want to go too okay. deep into that. But okay. I'm curious. You said that th- this, this kind of changed you, or at least your outlook on things. So I, I'm curious how that played in. I had my eyes flash, or my life flash before my eyes type experience. Right. And then, then I had it again uh, in Charlotte that we'll get to. Uh, and between the two of them, uh, it changed my attitude completely. All the stuff about stature, being on top, and money and all that was not important to me in the sense of I'm doing it for recognition, for fame, for money, or any other reason. It was that, okay, I'm going to maintain this lifestyle. If I'm going to do it, I want to take advantage of, of my education, my background, and be the best at it that can be. Mm-hmm. And that that entailed becoming a book. Because you say, well, if that's your attitude, why would you go ahead and do all those things, like be a booker and all that? was because that was a top level that a wrestler could, could aspire to, unless you become a promoter too. Uh, you managed to somehow either get a business, buy a business, or do a hostile takeover and get a business. The booker is the highest position you can get to. I got to that position in eight years, which is fairly unusual. I don't know uh, anybody that wasn't a promoter's relative that got there that quick. But anyway, it changed it changed my attitude about Again, having the same values, and I'm not better, but I'm not worse. Doesn't make me better anybody. It's just different, and that's why I feel. You know, that's why I feel. Again, I didn't have the same goals that a lot of the guys did. Right. Uh, and 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 again, doesn't make them wrong or me wrong either. One, it's just different. So I don't know what importance that has to what we're doing here. I, I, you might hear stuff that doesn't sound like it should come from a pro wrestler, but I, that's why I'm trying to give you some background as to why you hear that. Uh, so, okay. Uh, I'll try to get back on the path if that's oh. possible. <laughs> no, yeah, no, you're fine. I'm just, you know, we were just going over some of the names from this, from this time period. And uh, you talked about why you maybe didn't realize it. And then things, you know, even more so once you did realize it, it didn't really matter as much because of, Things that you know really mattered in life, like you know your life. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, one yeah. day we will get to that story. I know you've told it before. I know it's out there. People are uh, some people are familiar with it already. But I, I have questions, a lot of questions that I don't think anybody else has ever asked about that entire situation. So I think we're really going to dissect that a whole lot more here on the show when we get to that story about you over there in Iraq. Okay. Okay. But, uh, well, 
I hope I didn't give away too much. No, no, that's I, fine. It's a nice little teaser. Plus, again, a lot of people that are listening to this show, they probably have already heard what's out there of that story. I, you know, I just want, I want to try to pick it apart even more if possible. Oh, yeah, we will, because I've been thinking about it, too. Uh-huh. Uh, I, once I got over, the second book I wrote helped me get rid of my PTSD from that time. And since then, since then I can think about it with, during the day and not have nightmares at night. So I've well, been thinking about what happened and coming, trying to figure out why things happened. And so we'll be able to discuss stuff that has never been out there, has hadn't been put out there yet. Because right I was the only one that's going to be able to put it out there. Right. So... Yeah. yeah. Looking forward to that. Um, just a couple more names I wanted to try to at least sneak in here before we uh, get into the next part of your career. There's a couple matches. You caught it, too. You were on Wrestling Data kind of looking, going back in time and trying to jog your memory of maybe if some of these matches stuck out to you. And I, I'm pretty sure you said these matches didn't necessarily stick out to you, but you even found it a little odd. You're in a, not, It's not just once, so it's not a typo. It's in a couple of different towns. Bob Roop defeating... Jack and Jim Dalton in handicap matches. What is that about? Because we've seen Andre, guys the size of maybe Chris Taylor, right? Those guys beating a couple guys at once. But Bob Roop, an average size, not an average size, a little bigger than that. But, I mean, a normal size professional wrestler going in there. Is it just because of the Olympian status, I guess? You're in there against two guys and you're going over. Uh, we've talked about Jim Dalton here in the past. Now Jack Dalton comes to town. Not to be confused with the other Jack Dalton, which uh, I think Don Fargo used that name at one point. But this one, I believe, was Randy Colley, who would go on later to become Moondog Rex. But do you remember wrestling handicap matches at all with anybody at this point in your, your career? And uh, I'm just curious your take on that. I've been, I have been uh, racking my, my memory piles, uh, you know, a couple million of them, trying to see if I could remember anything. All I can speculate, I have to speculate. Again, I think they were trying to build me. And in that match, they had to tag in. They couldn't both, although I'm sure they did eventually. Both of them teamed up, up, <laughs> teamed up at me at the same time. And right. I ended up, I ended up probably giving them both a shoulder breaker or something like that because I don't remember the guys being, uh, like even the status of, uh, Mephisto and Donnie with uh, J.C. Dykes mm-hmm. or the Blue Demons. Or, I don't remember them being one of the top teams. I don't even remember them being uh, like Bronco Lubitsch and uh, Chris Markoff-like mm-hmm. level. Right. Uh, so I think they were middle-of-the-card, you know, guys that had experience, uh, middle-of-the-card type guys that could do that, that would be something. For me, I think, I think I'd probably, I know I'd already wrestled Jim Dalton a couple of times. Yeah. And singles. So uh, there will be a way to get, again, to get me over to your building, you know, you're building your racehorse and give both those guys a payday. And, you know, business is a work. So, you know, it's not like anybody's getting beat up for real. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what it was about. Because we did it in three or four, we did, I think, three of the main towns. I know we did it in Miami, right? And, yeah, that was one. Uh, and, yeah, one of them. So, yeah, it was just to get me over. Those guys were good to do it, but you know, that's, that's a business. You go to work, they tell you what you want to do, what they want you to do. And unless you're nuts, you do it. So there's a few other names here. You work quite often over this six month period, the first six months of 71 that we're not really going to touch on right now, because I know we're going to cross paths with them time and time again. Ron Garvin comes to town, Dickie Murdoch. We've already talked about Jack Briscoe and the funks. We'll definitely be getting to the funks here very soon. Cause you're off to Amarillo after this. 
But there's another name I wanted to get into here at the tail end of your time here in Florida, the first big long run in Florida, and that's Bob Duncombe. Bob Duncombe comes to town, defeats Bob Roop. You lose the Florida Brass Knuckles title, which uh, I do believe, hmm, who did you beat? Let's, let me go into my records here. Do you remember who you beat without me looking it up, or I can look it up? Dale Lewis? I that's, don't remember. That's correct. Dale Lewis, Jacksonville, Florida, oh, June the 12th. There uh-huh. you go. And, uh-huh. uh, and then on July 1st, you drop the belt to Bobby Duncan, which is because you're off to Amarillo. You'll actually pop up in Amarillo only two days later, your first match, July the 3rd. So, boy, they gave you a lot of time to prepare from Florida to Amarillo, and you're already in the ring less than 48 hours later. But do you remember any of your experiences in the ring or on the road with Bobby Duncan? I never was on the road with Bobby, but in the ring, he was good. You know, he was solid. We didn't do anything. We didn't have, like, high-spot matches. It was more wrestling, and uh, I just remember him being real solid. One little aside about that belt. Uh, when I went to Iraq, I had the belt at the time. I believe I did, and they wanted me to bring a belt. So I brought the I brought the uh, television champion belt. Well, what Casey had, he was champion. He was the British Commonwealth champion. Uh-huh. That's the Great Britain, Scotland, Wales, you know, all those the whole right. British Empire. Yeah, but he's champion of all those places. My belt is the television champion of one state, you know, the state of Florida. Right. And so that belt, the way they did advertising over there, they put it on the movie, like on the movie theaters. They would have, uh, uh, after the first match especially, they would have film of that match, and then they would be plugging the match coming up. They would have that belt out there. The Florida TV championship belt was there on the screen about, you know, 10 feet high on the screen. And you could see what it says, but it was in English. And I thought, man, you know, to go from the British Commonwealth Championship, you know, like representing like oh, 700 million people to one representing, a, you know, a few hundred uh, thousand, uh, what, a, what a change. But as far as uh, Bobby, no, I don't remember anything specifically. It, it's, it must have gone okay. Okay. Now, um, I just, it was c- kind of curious because Duncan comes into town. He beats you for the brass knuckles title here. But then when you take off to Amarillo, Bobby Duncan is there as well. So he's working Amarillo with you and in Florida here. So it was kind of odd to see Duncan working both territories at the same time. Meanwhile, you've jumped from Florida to Amarillo, which we will be getting into soon here on a future program. But I wanted to ask you about something else that popped up here in my results uh, for early part of 71. It looks like you make one quick trip up to St. Louis in April. Do you remember that one? Uh, vaguely. Am I uh, against Roger Kirby? It was a tag match. It looks like uh, Bob Roop right. and Luis Martinez versus, yeah, Roger Kirby and Rock Hunter. Right. Yeah, I do. Well, I don't remember Rock Hunter. I don't remember uh, my partner, but I remember Roger Kirby because mm-hmm. uh, he asked me in the dressing room to give him a backdrop on the comeback and uh to lift him and i did and he was at le- laid out at least i'm not kidding here now i'm looking at my own ceiling which was 10 feet high he was at least 12 feet in the air wow uh he i mean unbelievable i mean he got a big pop from the house and that's all i remember about the match that's why i remember it because uh as the first time i ever saw roger kirby roger's uh, not strange looking he's different though you know he's fair skinned blonde 
little pink in his complexion. He uh, kept a unique nice mustache for a lot of his career as well. Yeah, yes, yeah. He was a character. Uh, was that the only match that's listed? So I got you here in St. Louis on April 2nd, and then I got you the following day, which is kind of odd, Breeze, Illinois. And it says Bob Roop defeats Hans Schmidt by DQ. And this actually even has a time on it and everything, so the results must be out there somewhere. 24 minutes and 43 seconds, two out of three fall match in Illinois. Now, I don't know a whole lot about secondary towns for much, Nick. I don't remember him running in Illinois, but uh, it's listed at least on wrestling data as a as St. Louis booked show. I'm not really sure about that. Maybe you just had another day and you, you got some work up there. I don't really know how that how that worked out or if you recall that, but I was more curious that just out of the blue, you go up and you work Sam. Now, you remember how you ended up in Georgia, which was awesome because I was curious. Is Bob going to remember why? I thought it might have even been a typo when you went down to Atlanta for that one show against Aldo Bogni, but you can't, you know, you told us that great story about why they wanted you down there and you became Roop the Dupe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, well, I was just curious. Thank you so much for reminding me. <laughs> Absolutely. No problem. That's what I'm here for. So <laughs> I was just I'll curious if you remember. Well, Muchnick was, I remember the story you told the first wrestling promoter you talked to was Sam Muchnick, and he kind of advised you not to go into the wrestling business. You had, graduated from college and he yeah. wanted better things yeah. for you, so to speak. But here you yeah. are, but it just seems like a former Olympian much Nick didn't screw around with his uh, booking. He wouldn't book the ladies, wouldn't book the midgets. He was a very serious wrestling promoter, very little promos. Did you get on TV for much Nick as well? So he was a straightforward wrestling guy, NWA world title on the line all the time there in St. Louis. So it seems like you'd be a perfect fit to come in and work more than just one show here. Uh, for him, but it was just odd. I thought maybe it would stick out how you wound up in St. Louis. I've just become positive, running all the uh, possibilities through my mind, that this was preliminary work towards putting me into the salad made up of Dory Funk Jr., Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, and Harley Race. The way those guys all became champion was that Bob Geigel, Dory Funk Sr., and Eddie Graham had a threesome. Uh, and I think they must have had some other backers, too. But they had those three guys that were a block. They were a triumvirate. The three of them were together as a group. And they were back. They got to think about their their champions were the guys that were champions for like 10 years. Was Dory Jr., uh, Harley, Jack, and Terry. Uh, I'm not sure if it was 10 years, but it's been a long time. They, they, the champions were picked at the promoters uh, get together in Las Vegas. They would determine who, um, obviously those guys had sway. And Graham at the time, he was uh, he was an alcoholic, but he'd been dry off the bottle or, or on the wagon for years and years. He was sharp. You know, he was uh, he was like one of the sharpest promoters uh, in terms of strategy and uh, conniving and conning and all that uh, of all the guys around. Well, those are good and, qualities to be a promoter. Well, if you're going to be in a wrestling business, you're darn right. So uh, maybe if you're promoting peace on earth, maybe you're not the best. But thinking about it, because you, your question got me thinking, why would they send me there? They did it twice. He also took me to Master Court Garden three times. Yeah. So I'm thinking, why Why would he do that? Well, giving me a, like an intro or them an intro to me and me an intro to them. I'm Now, the, the TV and... Florida went into New York. So people had seen me. I mean, it was some kind of little sister station. It wasn't like a major mover in New York City, but it went in there. So some people would have seen me. 
I don't know. I don't have any idea about St. Louis. I don't know if uh, we went if our TV and Florida TV went in there at all. But I think that was it. I think the idea was to get me Eddie. Eddie at the time it, it ties in with what we've been talking about all evening or all all session was uh, about them developing me and trying to make me. You know, I think that Eddie felt like he had me locked in. I was going to be loyal to him, and that. He was going to be able to have me like he had Jack. I mean, right. in spite of all the things we'll get into that he did to Jack, um, that he had Jack. And Doric, Doric Sr., of course, had his, his sons. Uh, he And he protected them. I mean, they didn't get screwed around like Jack did. And Harley was uh, Harley was a, a hard case. Uh, he, he didn't get screwed around much either. He had I ways. I imagine not. <laughs> well, he had ways that he could deal with things. Harley was a really very smart guy. So I think that they were working me into the mix for like maybe seven, eight years down the road. Uh, maybe it well, would it's, be. It's peculiar you said that because in April you go to St. Louis and then May and June, back to back months, you wind up at Madison Square Garden working for Vince Sr. Wow. So, I didn't realize they were that close together. Yeah. So there's something clearly going on here. You're, you're making the rounds. Your name's getting out there. You're working undercard matches, as you should be. Nobody knows who you are up in New York. You're not even working the TV programs, but you're there. You're being showcased in New York City at the Garden, right? And that's right. like the Mecca, right? That's the, the place oh, yeah. to, to say that you've worked. And you go over both times uh, against right. you know, uh, Man Manny Soto, Manuel Soto one of the times, and then Aka Manuka, kind of an odd case as far as uh, his, his history in the business goes. But you appear there two months in a row at the Garden, and you go over both times. By I'm assuming pinfall, maybe submission, but you're you're scoring wins, and uh, you're not even returning. So that says a lot about maybe some plans, like you said, for the future. Get your name out there. That way, even if you don't return for another year, oh, I remember that guy. Yeah, he was here. Yeah. Well, again, it was a way to see. Well, and to see what I get over uh, was a match. Whatever I did, was it well received? Uh, it seemed to work. Uh, was I capable? Did the fans respond or, you know, did, in other words, it's like a, a tryout. Yeah. Uh, but I think that was the motive because why would you go to the expense of, I don't know, Vince McMahon senior paid our tra my trans up there. Or if Eddie paid it, I don't know, Eddie Graham. So, you know, he had to fly me to New York. Well, he, Graham went with me. So that's telling. And it Graham went too, even though now on one of the cards, I think he worked because he'd been, a, he'd been a major player up there sometime in his oh, career. Oh, yeah. Yeah, him and him and uh, Jerry. So he went up there with me, and I think there's something to be said for that. You know, it's like uh, he's my patron. I'm his protege or something like that. Uh, and, you know, again, having your your own pet chimpanzee who happens to be a, an Olympian, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it gives you credibility to be able to have an Olympian who, although it's not a stooge, it's not lighting your cigarettes and you know, laying down carpets for you to walk on is just obviously someone who's in your camp. You have them as part of your of your employers uh, and so are employees. So I think that's what was going on. I got to I got to go back to a second, though. Uh, you remember the, the meat chopping special with Okuma in Japan? Right. Is it Hans Schroeder? Hans Schmidt. Hans Schmidt. Hans Schmidt. Hans Schmidt. Have you, are you familiar with him at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, are you aware that he's a meat chopper? I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about as far as his uh, uh, technique, kick. if you will. 
Now, I have to admit that he did break up the punching. He threw in a lot of kicks. Uh, but then he went back to punching. Then he went back to kicks. Then he went back to punching. Then he went back to kicks. Sounds like a uh, uh, New York-based wrestler. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, 23 minutes of meat chopping. Oh, my God. What a nightmare. There's about 20 people in the audience. It's a little high school gym or something. Just, I'm out there with this guy who, and he's not very friendly. I don't think he enjoyed working with me. Uh, I don't know if I went over or not. It doesn't matter. You went over on a DQ. Okay. Well, the referee probably got uh, bruised by just by osmosis by being around us. But yeah, just uh, absolutely. (laughs) Abomination? Abomination, yes. Abortion is too kind. Yeah, just not, not, no story whatsoever. Just let's see if we can beat on, let's see if we can beat on each other the longest. Oh my God, what a horrible experience! Yeah, uh, they say it's I, the, the bad ones that stick out the most. <laughs> oh well, see, I remember that one. I, yeah. I don't remember the match with the uh, Rick Hunter, and it's funny. There's a thing on this uh, uh, wrestling stats. It, it lists all the people you work with. Okay. And I was looking. I was looking at it. Man, I work with a lot of different guys. I don't remember. Uh, we're all. I don't know. I guess major players. But you know, it's nice. To, I got, I'm glad I got to work with Lou Fez. You know, mm-hmm. Lou worked with everybody in the business because he worked for sixty years. You know, it's nice. And I got to work with most of the champions. I didn't work with Flair because he was a heel. And I think I was kind of retired by that time. But I got to work with Harley and Jack and Dory and Terry. So yeah. That, that's kind of you know it's kind of nice, and, I, and again I had a short career, so I feel like I got a lot done in a short amount of time. I got to see the places I wanted to see, and uh, come out of it reasonably good health. Uh, I've been retired for you know, forty years, and I'm still I'm still moving around, and, you know, getting things done, going right. to work. Right. So you made quick stops down to Atlanta. Uh, clearly up here in St. Louis, you did a couple shots here in the Garden, New York City, right before you leave. But for for the first two years of your wrestling career, you're you're being groomed in the Florida territory. Eddie Graham's there to oversee it, make sure things are being done properly for you as his talent. And you you do your tour of Japan as well. And then the time comes where you're shipped off to your very first territory outside of Florida, where you're actually going to be there for more than just a day or two. And I'm talking about the Amarillo territory. As we talked about, you dropped that Brass Knuckles title to Bobby Duncan July 1st, 1971. And by the 3rd, you're working cards for the Funks. And uh, I guess next episode, that could be a fun episode or two to talk about your time in Amarillo. You've touched on it in the past. Uh, we've told some Terry Funk stories here. But I, I guess you were told you had six months. You know, I guess you're, you're doing a favor for your promoter, Eddie Graham, going down there and going to work for six months. And uh, if it's all right with you... I thought maybe we'd get into the Amarillo talk. Some you're meeting a whole group of new talent to to work with there. Oh right, yeah. And some of them didn't like the idea of meeting me at all because I was still <laughs> kind of green. Uh, yeah, so yeah, uh, old old hands like Ricky Romero and Alex Perez and oh yeah, uh, guys that you know. I'm fortunate though. I met Carl Cox when I was there, and oh, Carl was uh, one of the best. Good guy. Good friend, loyal, decent, stand-up guy, and what a character! He oh, every he he, he had every carny move, everything, every all the carnies. Well, I've, I've, I've heard the the 
comedy bits he would do that some of the promoters didn't care for. Uh, he would purposely oh, yeah. wear white trunks and stick a candy bar down the back of his pants so that once, <laughs> once he got to sweating and scooting around the ring, he was just entertaining himself, you know, <laughs> I guess. For yeah. as much as you said Dick Slater wanted to patter himself after Terry Funk, I always heard Dick Murdoch patterned himself after Carl Cox. <laughs> well, yeah, Carl, Carl had a great sense of humor, you know, and oh, the thing is, Carl was a tough guy. I don't know how many guys were going to give him a bunch of, I, he didn't take any crap from anybody. Right. You know, I don't know how many promoters were going to give him a hard time about it, but yeah, he was, uh, he was funny. Uh, think about it for a week and come up with a few Carl Cox stories. If you have, have more than one. Oh, I got a, I got a okay. bunch of them. Well, I'm sure we're all going to look forward to it. I know I am already, uh, because I, you know, I, I love the character Carl Cox, but I'm sure, you know, he was just as much a character in real life as well. Talking to Alex in the sky, the master, the brain buster, Killer Carl Cox, plus so many other talents, of course, the Funk Brothers and beyond. And uh, we can save that for, for next week. But uh, I, I wanted to wrap it up here this week but on, a, on a high note, talking about your time. Well, I don't know if you want to call it a high note, but you're moving on. You're, you're, you're going to go to explore a new territory in Amarillo. Yeah, it was a heady experience. I didn't know what to expect. I figured it'd be much the same, but I didn't. I wasn't, re I wasn't ready to be in my car uh, like. 12 hours a day, five days a week. So, yeah, it had its well, good points and had its bad points. <laughs> well, an experience is an experience, I guess. And we'll experience your experiences here next week on the show. We're going to jump into the Dory Funk Senior-led territory of Amarillo and beyond. Heading to the Wild West next week with Bob Roop. Going to be a good time. Well, I'm looking forward to it. As am I. Thank you so much again, Bob. Appreciate it. All the stories here. Boy, did we cover a lot of names here this week. Really, really great stuff, you know, from your epiphany with uh, Bobby Shane all the way down the line. Chris Taylor, Lex Luger, all sorts of names came into play that were not on my list. And uh, I'm not <laughs> complaining about it either. Really, really cool stuff here this week. Thanks for sharing all of that with us here, Bob. Well, thank you, Ray, for letting me, allowing me to do it and setting it up so that it makes sense. No, we appreciate you, Bob. And we will see you back here next week, hopefully, for another edition of the Wrestling Stoop. Looking forward to it. And that's going to do it here this week for the Wrestling Stoop. When we return, Bob's off to Amarillo, guys, and the Funk Territory. Can't wait to get into all of that. Just a reminder, you guys can friend Bob Roop over at Facebook.com slash PoorBobRoop. And you can find me, Ray Russell, over on X, formerly Twitter, at Wrestling Grenade. It's at R-A-S-S-L-I in Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And don't forget, guys, to try it out, that $5 all-access tier over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. But for now, Bob and I are leaving the airwaves, but we encourage you to check us out each and every Wednesday for another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. <laughs>